John chapter 7, which is on page 1057 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 7, page 1057. I am thankful to the elders and the church for granting sabbatical. Um, one of the questions people are immediately asking is, who's preaching? And uh, we will be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. We'll just keep on studying John as a church. And uh, fortunately, God has really blessed our church with a uh, a squad of, of really gifted preachers with uh, Godwin and Seth and uh, some of our elders, Mark Jennings, um, Kevin Jameson, Pete DeAngelis. So we're, we plan to just do it all in-house, to have uh, our own preachers preach and to keep studying the Gospel of John um, because it's really about the Word of God and about, this, you know, right now in this season of our church's life, the Gospel of John. So we're just going to keep doing that. So it'll be, it'll be great just to keep studying John and hearing it from different gifted men that the church, uh, God's given to this church. All right, let's look today at the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. And could I ask you just to stand while we read? And let me read this text. John, chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, because for me the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. For uh, now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Please be seated. It's a very weird experience becoming a Christian, being a follower of Jesus. It's, it's, it's weird. It's wonderful, but it's weird. And uh, part of what's strange about it is that when you start following Christ, you have a very strong sense of being, an increasingly growing sense of being a stranger and a pilgrim and an alien in this world. Uh, you, you know, you, you come to faith in Jesus and you wake up the next day and you're in some ways the same person. You have the same house, uh, the same mortgage, the same rent due, uh, the same 20 pounds to lose, <laughs> you know, the, the, the same work environment, the same friends, the same relational issues. It, it, in some ways it's all the same. You look in the mirror, there's the same person. And yet everything has changed because spiritually you've been relocated in a different universe. You've gone from being in the world to being in the kingdom of God. And so now the way you look at life, the way you assess things, the way you make decisions, your priorities, the whole purpose, 
the warp and woof of your life is moving in a very different an increasingly different direction. And, and so it's, it's odd. And, and you can be very close to people and yet be in spiritually different universes. And that's just something to know as you think about following the Lord, that it's not just sort of a religion or, or going to church on a Sunday, but it's, it really is going from darkness to light, from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God and following Him within the world. Or as Jesus said, it is being in the world, but as he said, not being of the world, just as he is not of the world. So here we see Jesus in John chapter 7 talking to his brothers, those in some ways closest to him biologically of the same family, grew up together, and yet they are spiritually in different worlds. And, And you see this contrast here in this kind of interesting passage where Jesus talks to his brothers. So let's just look at this passage, and we're going to look at what the brothers say. We're going to kind of look at life in their world, and then we're going to look at what Jesus says and what life in the kingdom of God is like, and notice this contrast. But let me just set the, uh, the context really quickly. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, it says, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, So we know a couple things here. First, it's the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. That means that as we turn the page from chapter 6 to chapter 7, just as we move that one page from one chapter to the next, we're leaping forward in time about six months. So we've just sort of fast-forwarded. Chapter 6 all takes place during the Jewish Feast of Passover. And Passover is in the spring. It's around the same time as Easter. It's like September, or rather like March, April. And now... We look at chapter 7, and we see that it's the Feast of Tabernacles. That that was the fall feast. It was September, October. This is when uh, all the Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the fall harvest of olives and grapes as the fruit harvest, whereas Passover was the first uh, wheat harvest. So, So it's, you know, you turn one page and you go from spring to fall. It's like summer in New England. It's just boom, boom, there you are, you're in the fall. Skip over summer. What is he doing during these six months? What was he up to in this intervening intervening period? Well, verse 1, he was going around Galilee, staying out of Judea. So he was continuing to minister in the north of Israel, but he was staying away from the south of Israel where Jerusalem was because there was a plot among the Jews. And when John says the Jews, he, he specifically, it's kind of his way of saying the, the Jewish authorities. It, it's sort of a, a, a roundabout way of pointing out specifically the priests and the Pharisees who were trying to, to kill him. So Jesus was up there in the north, and and they were down there in the south. And that's where Jesus has, when Jesus has this conversation with his brothers, they come to him and want to try to talk him into going down to Jerusalem for the feast. So let's look at the words of the brothers and, and see what the mentality is, the outlook, the way of thinking is for the brothers who, as we're going to see, are very much part of this world's way of thinking. So it says there in verse 3, uh, Jesus' brothers said to him, by the way, isn't it interesting Jesus did have brothers? Uh, you know, there's a, a kind of myth or a legend that, that's somehow percolated up in, uh, or down, does percolation go up or down? Anyway, uh, it's this idea that's been in, in church history that somehow Mary was a perpetual virgin and that uh, after she had Jesus, uh, she had no more children. And I don't know, you, you know, it's sort of a strange idea. It's not anywhere in the Bible uh, Jesus had, after Mary had the virgin birth, she had other children. 
Uh, the names of Jesus' brothers are listed in Mark chapter 6. We had four, at least four brothers. We have all their names. Uh, so Jesus had a family. You know, he had brothers and sisters. Um, and yet they, they didn't believe. That's what's interesting. Look at verse 5. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. Jesus had a family, brothers, sisters, but they didn't believe. Can you relate? Huh? What it's like to have people in your life who in some ways are so close to you and yet spiritually different universe. And so that's where his brothers were at. So let's look at the words, at the advice of his brothers. So what did they have to say to him? Verse 3, Jesus' brothers said to him, you want to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one wants, who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. When I was studying this and when I was thinking about the, what the brothers have to say, I was kind of confused by it, actually. It took me a while to get my head around it and try to figure out what was going on because in some ways it seems like the brothers are actually behind him. You know, when you simply look at what the brothers say, it seems like they're all for him. They're saying, look, we have advice for improving your ministry. We want you to do better. Go to Jerusalem. Don't hang out here in private in Galilee. You know, nothing happens in Galilee. You got to go to Jerusalem. That's where the action is. Let people see your miracles there. Go out in public. Proclaim yourself. In other words, it seems like they're trying to push him to greater ministry. It seems like a very positive kind of statement. Like they're behind him and they're trying to, come on, Jesus, get off the dime. Go get on with this ministry. But then it says in verse 5, his own brothers did not believe in him. So then that seems like they're, they're not for him because they don't believe in him. So what do you, yeah, just wrestle on, what is verses 3 to 5 all about? Um, is it that the brothers are being really sarcastic? Um, is it that the brothers are sinister? Do they know that he'll get killed in Jerusalem and they want him dead? And so they're trying to trick him into going down there? Like what, what are they trying to do here? And yet there doesn't seem anything else in the passage that suggests sinister motives. So, you know, I was wrestling with it, and the conclusion I've come to is that the brothers are simply yet another example of the kind of quote-unquote faith that we've seen in Galilee. That as Jesus has continued his ministry in Galilee, he's continually encountered responses like the brothers, which are kind of like, wow, look at the miracles, but they don't really believe that he is who he says he is. That they can't deny the miracles and they're awed by the miracles, but they take those miracles and they interpret them within a worldly framework and a worldly wisdom that that is focused on the here and the now and using the miracles to kind of get what they want, but not really believing, as it says there in verse 5, the brothers did not believe in him. That was the brother's problem. They didn't believe in him. Let, Let me show you what I mean by this. Let me just give you two other examples of this kind of Galilean response in John. Go back to John chapter 4. Let's revisit a few passages that we've looked at in previous weeks and months. John chapter 4, verse 46. It says in John 4, 46, once more, he visited Cana in Galilee. So it's this emphasis on the Galilean ministry. 
where he had turned water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And look at Jesus' response. It's a bit shocking. Verse 48, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. So he rebukes this guy who's got a sick kid who's dying. But, but in other words, he's, he's sort of calling out the, the underlying problem, which is that this man really doesn't believe in Jesus. What he knows is, I heard you do miracles. I need a miracle. And so he's taking what he's heard about Jesus and using it for his own ends and purposes. He hasn't yet come to believe that Jesus is the bread from heaven, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't believe in him. He just wants something done for him and his son, a legitimate request in some ways, and yet missing the whole point of who Jesus is. Same thing in John chapter 6 that we've just spent the last month studying. John chapter 6 begins with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And if you look at John chapter 6 verse 14, how do the people respond to the feeding of the 5,000? After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Jesus reads what's really motivating them. He knows it. He sees it. And so he's like, you you guys don't get what I'm, I'm here to do. Nope, not playing that game. So again, they're interpreting miracles like the feeding of the 5,000, through a worldly lens, a worldly paradigm, and they're saying, wow, this guy, he fed us. He'd be a good king. Our king's lousy. This guy would be better than that. He seems to have some divine backing. We should, let's make him the king. And so they're looking at Jesus, but they're, they're focusing on their concerns and their needs. They still haven't yet come to believe who he is. Because later on in chapter 6, Jesus gets in their face. He's like, you guys are just come following me because you wanted bread. You asked for bread, you got bread. That's all you care about is this bread I gave you. And he tells them later, I'm the bread of life. And they don't believe. And they're like, what? You come down from heaven? Who do you think you are? And then there's this big fallout that happens. So, so he, Jesus sort of calls them out. And he shows that what they want is the food and the politics, but they don't care about who he is, that he is eternal life, that Christ is the Savior, that he's come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I believe that that is what is happening with the brothers. Now, if you go to chapter 7, they are yet another example of the Galilean response. Here's yet another picture of it. Notice their focus on miracles. You ought to uh, go there, at verse 3, so, that your, so your disciples can see the miracles you do. Yeah, you're going to be a public figure. You've got, you got to go make yourself public. And yet they did not believe. They, they didn't believe that Jesus is everything that the choir just sang for us in that bulletin. You know, go back and read those words of, that the choir sang for us. All these words come right out of John You know, that Jesus is the bread of life, that he's the light of the world, that he's the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection, the good shepherd. You know, that's who he is. And they weren't believing that. They were just, they had worldly wisdom. They're like, look, Jesus, you want to have followers, you want to build a crowd, come on, man. 
Just go down to Jerusalem. That's where the people are. Do some miracles there. Stop hiding out here in Podunk, Galilee. You've got to go down to where the capital is, the epicenter of Jewish life and identity. That's where you're going to make your move, do your miracles there. People will follow you. It's worldly wisdom. But they didn't really believe who he was. You know, it's like, Jesus, some tough love here, bro. You blew it six months ago, okay? I hate to say it, but you blew it, all right? You ruined it. You fed the 5,000. You had a crowd. They're ready to make you king. And what did you do? You started saying, I'm the bread of life, and I've come down from heaven. You're talking about predestination. You said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they all freaked out, and I think I would have too. But this is great. It's six months later. You've got another chance. You could work on your messaging a little to repackage this a bit. Uh, you know, people have a short memory. They'll probably forget about that weird stuff you said. You know, and it, it, we'll, we'll, come, we'll come down to Jerusalem. We'll do the miracles again. We, we can get your ratings back up. We can, we, we can sort of, you know, save your career. You can kind of reinvent yourself as an artist. It, 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 you, you can repackage this whole thing. Go down to Jerusalem. Stop hiding. Do this right. It's just worldly wisdom. It's the world's way of, of getting her done. This is how you get it done. Anyone knows this. Come on, Jesus. But the problem was they didn't know who he really was or what his mission was. They just assumed that his mission was what any person wants. Power, fame, a following. They didn't get it. They didn't know why he was here because they didn't believe in him they were just taking this, their brother who's doing all these amazing things. He never did that when I was growing up. Wow. And now they're going, well, I guess what you use that for is to get famous and to have followers, right? So go do that. Here's the formula. There is a worldly wisdom. It's one of the things we, we face as Christians is that experience of moving from the world into the kingdom of God is we come to realize Boy, I used to do life very differently. I used to follow a different paradigm, a different narrative. I'm now following Christ, and it's very different. I'm thinking about the world different ways. But that worldly wisdom keeps pressing in on us as Christians. It's, it's always there. It's always telling us how to think about things. It, it's not just the TV. You know, everyone's always down on the TV. But, I mean, it's everywhere. It's the books. It's the magazines. It's what our parents told us growing up. It, it's just in the, the culture everywhere. And it's a worldly way of looking at reality that is not centered on Jesus. It's not centered on His glory, but it's centered on worldly wisdom. Comes into the church, you know, grow the church, build, get a crowd, get people together. I, uh, I had lunch with a pastor a couple of weeks ago. He's a new pastor, and so he, he was wanted to talk to me since I've been a pastor a little longer and wanted to get my advice and. And, you know, one of, one of the things he was wrestling with and that pastors wrestle with is this pressure that pastors can feel sometimes about growing the church. We need to grow the church. And so he was asking me, he's like, how do I grow my church? What, what do I need to do to grow the church? And so I was like, okay, okay, okay. Step number one, stop trying to grow the church. <laughs> That's God's job. God is the one who saves people. You know, the Lord adds to the number if he so wishes. I'm like, what you need to do, I said, is number one, learn how to love your people. Like, you need, you're a shepherd. You just got to love those sheep. If you don't love them, you have no business leading them. 
So I'm like, love the sheep. Let them know you really love them. And they're not just sort of pawns as part of a thing that you're trying to build some big organization. They're just sort of cogs in a wheel. Let them know you're the shepherd and you love them. Then I'm like, and then second, start honing your skill in expository preaching. Start working on how to just teach the Bible faithfully. The sheep need food. And you know what? When the sheep are being fed, healthy sheep reproduce. And uh, God will take care of the growth. You know, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel every sermon, even if it's not an evangelistic sermon. And, and teach your people to preach the gospel. And, and just let God take care of that, all the numbers stuff. That's his business. And, it, you know, it's just a different way of looking at it. What is our mission? Is it a worldly way of thinking about the church sort of an, as an organization, or is it thinking about the gospel in a biblical way? But it's not just the church. It's not just ministry. It's all of life. I mean, don't you always feel the, the pressure of worldly thinking coming in? There's worldly wisdom about marriage. There's worldly wisdom about dating. You know, the, wor- the worldly wisdom says, look, you deserve to be happy. That's worldly wisdom. You need to be happy. Why would you do anything that doesn't make you happy? And if you're in a relationship and you're not happy, you deserve to be happy. So you don't do something else. The world focuses us that way. The worldly wisdom in parenting comes upon us. And, and we feel this pressure to have our kids succeed and to do well and achieve and win medals and go to the right school and get the right degree so they can be successful and achieve. So what? Where is this going? And there's this pressure that comes in on parents to do all those things, and yet no focus on Christ, no teaching our children the gospel, no trying to help our children believe in Jesus in verse 5, the most important thing there is. Wow. Worldly wisdom, it's, it's there. Boy, that's a whole sermon. We could just go on with that, couldn't we? All the different ways the world presses itself in on us, but the world doesn't see Jesus And so the whole value system, the very assumptions of the whole system are broken from the get-go. And here's Jesus, same family, different universe. Brothers through Mary, and yet completely different way of looking at reality. And it comes out simply as, no, I'm not going with you guys to the feast. I'm not going to go to the feast. But... What's interesting are the reasons he gives for why he doesn't go with them to the feast and declare himself publicly. So let me look at verses 6 to 9. Let's now shift from the brothers and their worldly wisdom to Jesus and the kingdom of God. Let me read verses 6 to 9 and see if you can pick out the two reasons that Jesus gives for not going with them to the feast and declaring himself publicly following their model. So look at verse 6. Therefore Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feasts. I am not yet going up to the feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. So Jesus isn't going up. He's not following their plan for making friends and influencing people. So so what is it? Why not? Why won't he go? Well, two reasons. Number one, it's not the right time. Verse 6, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. Again in verse 8, I'm not going up yet because for me the right time has not yet come. There's a a, a little Greek word there that this 
version is translating right time. It's a Greek word, kairos. And this Greek word kairos often in the New Testament carries an implication of um, God's appointed timing. Sort of the right time because this is God's planned time for something. So Jesus lived under a strong sense of fulfilling God's mission. God had given him a mission. He was doing that mission. And the brothers didn't understand the mission, and so for them, they didn't understand the timing. They couldn't understand why Jesus would or wouldn't do something. It's just obvious. Why not do it this way? And Jesus pushes back on them a little bit. It's a bit of a rebuke where he says, look, for you, any time is right. It's a little bit insulting. But the point is, you guys, you guys aren't following God. You're not in the kingdom of God. You're thinking in worldly ways. And that's the thing about the world. When you're in the world, when you're living by the world system, any time is right. Hey, as long as it works for you and it makes you happy and you don't hurt anyone, whatever. Whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, it's your life. Just do it. It's always the right time. But when you're following the Lord, when you move from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God, God is now God of your life. And so we don't just do what we want, when we want, however we want. Hey, as long as I'm not hurting everyone and everyone's happy, who really cares? We say, no, no, I'm living my life for God's mission. It's to glorify God, to spread the gospel, to love people with the love of Christ. I want Christ to be glorified because it's now a Christ-centered reality in which I live. And that drives me in different ways. It makes me relate in different ways. And so in some ways, Christians are very much like Jesus here. We, we, we don't follow the world's timetable. Now, there's differences, of course. It, it's always a tricky thing to look at Jesus and then as Christians say, that's what I should do. You know, have you guys seen those, you know, the old saying, what would Jesus do, WWJD, it was out for a while. I was always a little queasy about that because in some ways it's true, but in some ways it's really not true because Jesus is unique. There's some things about Jesus we don't do because, you know, he's the son of God and he came on a unique mission. And so there's a sense in which what Jesus was doing here, what he's talking about his time is, is something that was unique. He had a unique mission to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet in other ways, we're, we are just like him because we too submit to the Father's will. And so we also, as Christians, live under a sense of divine authorization and guidance where we do what the Lord has told us to do, what his mission is for us. But what does that look like practically? Can we just get kind of practical here for a minute? Can I suggest just at least three ways in which we as Christians don't do anything anytime we want, but we follow the Lord's timing and the Lord's will? One of them, uh, number one, is that when the way we live our lives is by consulting God's word to see what we should do or what we shouldn't do. When we come to issues in life, when we come to challenges, and we're thinking about how to live, our first question is, what does the Word of God say? If He is the King, then this is the King's Word, and we live by His Word. It's very different from the world. The world's like, why would you be tied up and straitjacketed by some ancient book? That's the world's mentality. But no, this is the Word of God. And so as Christians, we're always asking, what does God's Word say? And we're wrestling with it. And Christians sometimes disagree about what God's Word says, but hey, the point is we're wrestling with this, not just doing whatever we want to do in here. And God's Word gives us different timing. You know, I think about, uh, you know, one huge area of our culture, just an 
a dominant part of our culture is, is just sexuality. It's a huge part of what drives our culture and drives marketing and drives media and drives us as, as people. And the world says any time is right. As long as you're both consenting, what does it matter? It's your business. But when we come to the Word of God, we say, God, you made sexuality. When is it right? And we see that God's plan is, is that sexuality is to be expressed within marriage. It's the physical expression of marriage. And so we say, oh, this isn't the right time. The right time is within the bonds of marriage as a way of honoring God with our bodies and everything that we are. So as Christians, we're submitting ourselves to the Word of God. We don't walk the way the world walks. We're at a different tempo, a different rhythm, a different pace. It's as if the world is moving along, doing its thing, and we're kind of walking the other direction, and we have an iPod with earbuds in, and we're kind of listening to different music, and we're moving funny, and everyone's looking at us like, why are you walking like that? Because I'm listening to something you can't hear. I'm listening to God's Word. Another way that that we as Christians, I, I think, learn over time to follow the Lord's timing and things is through prayer. So one is Scripture. Number two is prayer. We need to be a praying people. When things come up, decisions, issues, questions, we need to go to prayer. Worldly wisdom says, just figure it out. You're smart. You got business sense. You read books. You got degrees. You're clever. Just figure it out. But the Christian says, no, 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 no. I need to pray first. (laughs) Um, And and just to be clear, I'm not advocating a kind of Christian decision-making that that is like super mystical, where every time any decision comes up, we, you know, what should I wear this morning? Let me pray. And I'm not going to put any clothes on until I, I get a, a vibe. You know, it's like, I'm not saying that. You know, I, I've gone to a lot of decisions in life where I've prayed and I haven't heard a, a voice and I haven't had five signs of confirmation, but you pray and then you make a decision. But, you know, so, so it's not that it's a manipulative process of getting God to answer in a certain way, but it's that we pray. We come to those big decisions. You know, what, what do I do with my life? What should I major in? What about this purchase? What about that job? And, and we come to the Lord humbly and we say, God, I need wisdom. God, I need you to search my heart because I know I can trick myself very easily. I don't trust myself and my own motives. Could you please reveal my own heart to me? And so we come to the Lord and we submit ourselves to the Lord. I was uh, on the phone this week with a, a brother here in the church, and we're trying to start early planning for next year's um, men's retreat. Uh, we, we go in, in January in an annual men's retreat. It's really fun, really awesome. And uh, so we're sort of putting together a leadership team for that. So I was calling this brother to ask him about being a part of that. And he said, you know, it's a real honor to be asked. And he, he said, my natural impulse right now is to say yes. He goes, but can I can I pray first? I really should pray about this. And I'm thinking, that's the right guy. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of leaders you want in a church. You want leaders in the church who are like, wow, big issue, big question. We need to pray. Let's pray. And then, you know, use your smarts and whatever that God's given you, but pray. Seek the Lord. His timing may be different than our timing. God has a plan and a purpose. He wants us to glorify Him and to share the gospel. And maybe His purposes are very different than even the questions we're asking. And we think the question is this, I need guidance on this and this, and God needs to take our hearts and say, no, 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 I'm more concerned about my glory. He needs to redirect us through prayer and through Scripture study. And then the third place we go as Christians to get a different sense of timing and a different sense of um, 
what we do with our lives is I, I think we go to the church. I think we go to other brothers and sisters and we open our lives to them. That's the wonderful thing about church membership is, is that as, when you become a member of a church, you're joining a community of people where you're saying to each other, I, I am officially allowing you to do an audit of my life. And you're opening up your heart so I can do an audit of your life. And you're looking at each other saying, you, know, you can ask me the tough questions. And we can go to each other and seek wisdom. You know, when you're wrestling with things, when you're trying to figure things out, when you're confused in life, Go to a, you know, don't open up your horoscope and don't Google it. Like, go to the church. There are so many wise, godly, experienced men and women, typically, hiding in the church. Sometimes it's the quiet people who don't say anything, but they've made some decisions in life. They've gone through challenges. They've had, they've learned lessons of obedience and disobedience. And, and sometimes the, the older saints, they have so much wisdom to share. And, and, you need to, and they, they won't say it because they're kind of quiet. And they're like, eh, I'm old now. It doesn't matter what I think. Those are the people you need to talk to. They have wisdom. You need to go to them and say, what, what do you think about this? Well, that reminds me. When I was your age, this happened. And then all this wisdom pours out. And so God uses his church and his body and his community to, to guide and direct and so as Christians, it's not just, well, do what you want. As long as you don't hurt anyone and you're happy, what's the big deal? No, no, I am living for God's glory. And so I'm walking to a different rhythm. I'm in a different timing. I'm living for different purposes. Just as Jesus had a different mission than his brothers could even possibly imagine, that he was going to the cross. So that's number one reason that Jesus is not going with the brothers down to Jerusalem because it wasn't the right time. Second reason, because the world hated him. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. That's why your scheme, my brothers, will not work, because the world hates me. Yeah, I could go do some miracles, and the world might be wowed and oohed and awed for a moment, but underneath it, they don't want to follow me. They don't want to trust me. They don't want to be citizens of God's kingdom. And so ultimately they hate me. And why does the world hate Jesus? He says, verse 7, because, here's the reason, I testify that what it does is evil. Testifying that what someone is doing is evil is usually not a good way to make friends with them that doesn't usually work well if you're trying to get a crowd of happy followers. Pointing that out is not popular. But that's who Jesus, not just what Jesus did, that's who he was. He was the light of the world. Jesus is the light. He's love, but he's also light. And his light shines in the darkness. The holiness of God shines and it makes us uncomfortable because we are of the world. You know, that you keep saying the word world, world, world. You know, worldly wisdom. What is the world, by the way? And, and when you look in the Gospel of John, when John uses that word world, he kind of has a range of meaning, but at the center of that range of meaning really is not so much the number of people in the world, it's more the, the hostility of humanity toward the Gospel. 
the hostility of humanity toward Christ. It, it's more a qualitative word, a sort of a quantitative word. And, and so Jesus is like, the world hates me, and I came here to show that what it does is evil. Let me just do a quick little survey with you. Right through John, we'll look at a few verses. Turn back to John chapter 1, verse 4. Let us follow the career of Jesus as testifier to evil. The table gets set right at the beginning, John chapter 1, before Jesus even appears in the story. We know his mission in this sense. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Or John chapter 3, when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 19. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, that's Jesus, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Or chapter 4 and chapter 6 that we just studied, what was Jesus exposing? He was exposing their unbelief. He was saying to this guy who was asking Jesus to heal his son, you guys, you won't believe unless you see a miracle. He was exposing the shallowness and superficiality of their unbelief. He was exposing the unbelief of the crowds in John chapter 6. In our own passage, John chapter 7, he's exposing the sin of the brothers by saying to them, any time's right for you. And saying to his brothers, the world doesn't hate you. You're part of it, man. Don't you see? He's, he's sort of calling them out and showing them where, what spiritual universe they are in. That they're part of the world. John chapter 7, verse 19. Just the last one here. We can go on and on, but John 7, 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? He points out their law-breaking, their religious hypocrisy, their murderous plans and schemes. So Jesus just keeps shining the light, shining the light. He is loving, but He is also light. And the darkness hates the light. Have you ever been in a situation in life? Have you ever gone through a situation where somebody has some sin that gets exposed and it's kind of ugly? You know, the lid sort of gets pulled off something that people thought they had under wraps. Maybe you've been in like a family situation or a work situation or with a friend. And, you know, maybe there was like an affair or maybe there was some addiction or maybe there was just lies. And, you know, the, the lid gets ripped off it and gets pulled off and, you know, all the stench comes out. And, and the, the thing that always amazes me in those situations is that even when, when the truth starts to shine, how the our darkened souls keep backing away and keep trying to cover up with lies. And it's like, you're caught. Why do you keep, why do you keep lying? You're caught. You know? And, and we, keep, we think, oh, maybe I could lie like this, and maybe I could do that. And, and maybe I could blame this, and maybe I could say, well, yeah, I kind of did, but it's not really my fault. It's his fault. And it's like, just confess it. <laughs> just have out with it. But that's our nature. We all do that. It, it takes so long to make a full confession. You know, it's like vomiting. You just got to keep throwing up and throwing up till it's all out. And, and we don't like that. It's a horrible process. It, it's really painful. 
But that's our nature. We, we don't like the light. We don't like to be exposed. And it's not just the kind of flagrant, obvious you know, sins that, that we might be able to easily identify. What I find is even as a Christian, even after I've been brought from darkness to light, that the closer you come to Jesus, the closer you walk with Him, the more the light shines. And I keep discovering all these dark nooks and crannies in my soul that I didn't know were there. You know, I've been walking with the Lord now for like 20 years, 25 years, I don't know exactly. I should probably figure that out. But you know, Maybe 30. Wow, I'm getting old. And it's getting longer. You think, by now certainly the Lord has done His work with me. Certainly I am pure. Certainly the light fills me. And then He shows me more things. And the thing is, the longer you walk with the Lord and the closer you get to Him, the sin just gets more subtle and nuanced. It's more slippery and sneaky. You know, the fine subtleties of pride... The fine subtleties of self-righteousness and religious snobbery. The fine subtleties of, of trusting in myself and my own credentials rather than trusting in Jesus. Um, the victim mentality. The martyr syndrome. Woe is me. My, my, my inability to forgive people. My, my ability to, to just hold on to malice and unforgiveness and bitterness. The greed. I mean, it's just like, wow, sin is so fine and it's, it's like dust. It gets into all the little crevices. And so the light shines. And the more we walk with the Lord, the more the light shines. And the closer you get to the light, the brighter it gets. And the more you go, oh, I didn't see that before. I thought I was clean. Jesus, you know, have mercy. Because that's the light. And it's wonderful. But it's painful. And we don't like it. That, that side of us that needs to die doesn't like that. Here is a question, a prayer really, that I would challenge myself and challenge you to pray. This is a big prayer. It's a prayer that God will answer. Here's the prayer. Lord, show me my sin. If you pray that Seek it, Lord, show me my sin. That's a prayer the Lord will answer. And it hurts. It's humbling. It ruins the lies I've told myself about myself. But until you come to see it, until the light shines, you can't really understand who Jesus was and why he came. Until the light shines, you think you're okay and I'm okay and, well, you know, Jesus is here to help me with my problems. But once the light shines and you go, I have something bigger than just a need for physical healing or for food or for a good politician. I need a Savior. I need the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Who could take away my guilt? Where's the, where's the exercise class to work that off? Where's the self-help book that can remove the sin in my heart toward God? And I realize I need the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And once the Lord shows you your sin, then pray, Lord, show me the cross. I want to see Jesus. And it's then that we're able to see Him. And that's what the brothers couldn't see. And we can't see apart from God's grace. 
But I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful for Him who waited on the Lord's timing. I'm thankful that six months after this story in John 7, there would be another spring and it would be a Passover where Jesus would go back to Jerusalem but he would go publicly, just like the brothers said he should. He would go publicly announcing himself, but not to do miracles and become the king. He was going to die because that was his mission. He was going to save us, to save me from my sins. So we see a Savior who is on mission, and I thank God he stayed on mission. Thank God he did what the Father said and not what the worldly wisdom would say because it's through his obedience that we come to our salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, look to the Lord. Look to Christ. You know, may you treasure and savor your salvation so much. May you so see the sin that you've been saved from and treasure what Christ has done for you and so believe in Him that the thought of going back to the world would just seem so repugnant and silly to you. May the logic of the cross produce greater faithfulness in us. And may the light continue to shine in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you because you are the light, the life, the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection and the life. We praise you because you're the good shepherd. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you for your love for us, that you came to meet our deepest need, the, deed that, the need that we don't even recognize so often we have, which is our forgiveness and reconciliation with you. Thank you, Jesus, that you shine your light in our souls. I pray, Lord, for all of us here that you would show us our sin, and then, Lord, that you would show us the cross. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters here who are leaving this wonderful weekly gathering of the family of God where it's so awesome to sing your praise and talk about you. But Lord, brothers and sisters who now have to leave here and go back to places where they feel very odd. Lord, to families, to work environments where the world does not understand why they do what they do. And Lord, I just pray that you would bolster these brothers and sisters. I pray that you'd give them strength and courage to keep faithful, to, to follow your timing and your lead and your word, Lord. And I pray that they would, they would not be afraid of resistance and hostility. Lord, sometimes we shine a light just by not going along with the gossip and the filth in the world around us. And Lord, I just pray, give people courage to simply be holy and to let the chips fall where they may. So Lord, strengthen us and give us hearts of compassion the people in our lives. Help us not to, to see people as enemies, but Lord, may we pray and may we continue to love them with the gospel in hopes that you might do for them what you've done for us, that you're, there might be another great rescue airlift where we're pulled out of the kingdom of this world and brought into the kingdom of your Son. Lord, may you be saving. Father, would you grow the church as people come to truly believe in Jesus? We pray this in his name. Amen.